Hi, everybody. It's Dennis Daly, inviting you to join me for the next hour, right here. And our time together is called Vintage Vincennes. I hope you've been enjoying the interviews I found in my archives and some of the new ideas presented every week right here. And this time around, an interview with a guy who turned out to be just a wonderfully sweet person, but I remember him more for his wonderful American Maltese accent. He was the child of immigrants. And he went to the top in winemaking in California, not only because he was a bright, inventive kind of guy, but Charlie Abella knew how to work hard, and he got that from his parents. I was born and raised in San Francisco. Uh, both of my mother and my father immigrated right after the turn of the century to San Francisco, and they came from the island of Malta in the center of the Mediterranean. It's a little island about 60 miles south of Sicily. They grow a little wine there. It's a small place that they don't grow much. Uh, but uh, my father, uh, when he was in San Francisco, we were all with immigrant people. There was lots of Maltese people, lots of Italians, Germans, French, and uh, most of them made home wine. So as a little boy, I uh, worked with my father making home wine every year. Uh, and uh, so that's how I got acquainted with wine. It was always served on our table. As children, we were able to uh, have wine if we wanted it, and we did. Uh, most of the time, we had to mix it with water, and that's how we, we developed a taste for wine. And um, I've uh, been making home wine myself also for many years. And um, I uh, was... Uh, working for a gentleman, Ernie Ernest Van Asperen, who was the largest um, wine and spirits retailer in Northern California. Had over about, he had about 85 stores, Ernie's Wines and Liquors. I was working for him, and uh, he moved up in 1968 to Napa Valley and bought a beautiful uh, estate up here. And there are a lot of them up here. <laughs> yes, right. He's right um, in the center of St. Helena on the west side, as far as you can go up on the mountainside. It's just gorgeous there. In fact, you're going to go there, I believe, today for lunch with us. So you, you moved here and then uh, found yourself almost immediately, not, uh, not on the retail side of it, but on the growing side of it. Yes, I was helping Ernie develop vineyards and doing mechanical work in the vineyards and things. And uh, when that got over, um, I was going to go back to San Francisco, and Ernie says, well, let's stay together. So he said, let's do something together, and he uh, suggested that um, I start a winery. And uh, so uh, he sold to me, he had developed the Round Hill label, uh, the first uh, label that he had produced was in 1973. That was strictly a negotiant label, that there was a lot of good wine on the market, uh, bulk wine on the market, and uh, he could use it in the stores. He bought very high quality wines, 
uh, and bottled them in the Round Hill label, and he was very successful with that. So he offered to sell me the label, and uh, so I bought the label and uh, leased a little building, 4,500 square feet, which we still have. We, we're using it now as an aging cellar for our Napa Valley red wines. It's all full of barrels, and um, uh, shortly after, Ernie helped me uh, promote the wine and uh, with financing, and then uh, he joined me about a year or two later, and um, him and his wife came in the winery, and uh, we've been uh, working together all these years. Well, Charlie, I'll tell you what, let's leave this beautiful scene outside, and uh, I think people can hear in the background a lot of traffic goes through here. It, it provides for tourists coming into the area a rather unique experience, and at times, uh, it look, you've almost got a traffic jam up some of these roads. Oh, yeah, especially this time of year. We're the second biggest attraction in California, I believe. Well, the first being Disneyland? I, I believe you're right, yes. Napa Valley uh, receives each year well over a million tourists up here, and we're noted for not only for our fine wineries, and but also for our wonderful cuisine we have and restaurants here we have in Napa Valley. There are some grand restaurants here. For people who've not been here, the thing I think that's the prettiest about the Napa Valley and some of the surrounding areas is that these little valley coves are so cozy little tiny twists and turns in them and uh, I think people who've not seen them maybe the only thing they've seen was that TV show Falcon Crest which uh, had some beautiful photography in it yeah you're right as a matter of fact when you travel highway 29 or the Silverado Trail which go up and down the valley you only see really a small part of where the wineries really are and how beautiful some of them are uh, and also vineyards that are tucked in little valleys which you can see from the main road. Charlie, we've begun to hear some uh, electronic equipment here. Tell us, if you will, well, and remember it's radio, if you can describe what, what is in front of us here. Well, what's in front of us is the, we call it the crush pad, where the grapes arrive from the vineyards. And uh, this is where uh, we first, the first gondola comes in, we bless them, <laughs> and then... A uh, little ceremony. Yeah, a little ceremony. I might point out, when you say gondola, there are specially made trucks that are basically big hoppers that the bunches of grapes are thrown in, and then these lean to the side and dump them into, the, into your equipment here. Yes, we have a uh, five-ton hoist here that lifts one side of them, raises one side and dumps it into a... Uh, 20-foot-long receiver, and uh, that receiver then moves them um, with a screw conveyor up to the um, crusher stemmer, where where we uh, the crusher stemmer destems the berries off of the stems. The stems are recycled back into our vineyards. The berries are lightly cracked or crushed. And then from there, they go into either the tanks for fermenting if they're a red grape, or they, if they're a white grape, they could go directly into the press for pressing. Well, now, you don't have that scene anymore that was uh, immortalized in one of the I Love Lucy episodes where you're out there stomping on the grapes anymore. No, unfortunately, uh, we only do that uh, for a show once in a while to have a few laughs and a good time.
but commercially, uh, we Well, you, you couldn't. You'd have to have 100,000 people, people standing that's around. That's right, exactly. <laughs> well, Charlie, take us uh, around here, if you will, and tell us what happens. The, the grapes come in from the vineyards, uh -huh. and uh, you take the stems off, and they go through this big conveyor. You might call it an auger. An auger, uh, right. And uh, depending upon the color of the kind of grapes, they go into one or two areas. I'm still fascinated by the fact that, for the most part, except for a lot of knowledge and tender, loving care, you just kind of leave the grapes alone to do their own thing. Well, actually, nature does more for the grapes than we do. We only assist nature in making the wine. We kind of guide it along a little bit. Uh, but uh, very true. Uh, so most times, you got a good product coming in, good grapes, and uh, nature will take care of the rest of it. We just have to guide it along. Be careful. It is a food product. And you must be clean and sanitary, because uh, it could get um, different bacteria in it. So uh, we do do that very carefully. Keep now, from, from a layman's standpoint, is it safe to say that there are basically four kinds of grapes, the ones that are going to be made into fine wine, the ones that are made into what you might call uh, table wines of lesser quality, table grapes and then that's where raisins come from isn't it well not so much anymore uh, they don't uh, use uh, Thompson seedless uh, most of the raisins are made from Thompson seedless okay. uh, not all but uh, the majority of them are made from Thompson seedless and uh, those grapes are not used to make wine not even table wine so it's a special special variety that's only going to end up being raisins. Mostly, that's that is correct. Very little is ever used uh, for, for 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 making wine. Now, there's a whole side of the winemaking industry, though, that I alluded to that I have heard referred to as bulk wine. It it doesn't show up in a in a fancy. Uh, 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 labeled bottle, it's just out there, and that would be what? The more economical, or that would be served as a house brand in a restaurant? Well, basically, that is correct. Uh, and most of it is uh, that. However, there are wineries that do produce a very fine wines, fine varietals of, uh, of a very fine quality, that also they will sell that to other wineries. So that's done. There's a big business among wineries of uh, buying and selling wine between themselves. I think the most startling thing about visiting California agriculture at all is how much of it there is. I mean, when you think of the number of bottles of wine in people's houses and in grocery stores in this country, there have to be a tremendous amount of grapes out there. Well, this is very true. However, uh, I'd like to see a lot more because our per capita consumption in the United States is, is sitting somewhere around uh, two gallons per head, whereas in uh, a lot of the other countries, Europe, Latin America, uh, their consumption is up, uh, some countries are anywhere from 15 to uh, 20 gallons per head. My host, Charlie Abella, master winemaker, in Napa Valley, California. Is wine good for you? I'll ask that of Charlie after the break.
Welcome back. We're back into the archives for an interview I did with master winemaker Charlie Abella, a funny guy with a great voice. His parents were from Malta. He had an incredibly interesting accent. And I asked him whether a lot of studies that show drinking wine every so often was a good habit if he believed in those studies. Without question, uh, the more we're studying and the more we're learning, we're finding that out, uh, not only in this country, but also in Europe. They're funny, and they seem to know that over there. Charlie, you were going to take me to the cellars. Uh, Is that part and parcel of most wineries that you have to have kind of a quiet, cool place to store things. Uh, is, I guess what I'm asking is, is, is storing wine in a cellar a tradition or a necessity? Well, it's both. Uh, it is a tradition, but it's also a necessity. Uh, wine uh, does like a pretty steady temperature. By the way, that, that wonderful fragrance you always smell when wine's being stored. Is that yeast, basically, I'm smelling? Or well, just, it's a, it must be a combination of odors. I can spend my life in here. I just love this smell. Yeah, I think at this time of year, what you're, what you're smelling here is really the aromas coming from the tanks and the barrels of wine. In the, during fermentation, you'll get more of that yeasty uh, smell than, than, than you would now. And you also, I know, having been here at harvest time before, see an enormous amount of bees hanging around, but that's because of all the sugar. That's correct. That's all the sugar in the, in the grapes. And uh, those bees come around those vineyards at the right time. They know when those grapes are ripe, just like the birds. Charlie Abella here at Round Hill in the, uh, the Napa Valley. I noticed that everything here, your tanks are all stainless steel. Uh, do you have any wooden, or is that just kind of going out with all the new technology? No, not at all, um, uh, Dennis. Uh, we just walked in the first part, and this section of our winery is all the stainless steel area. And you do see some barrels here among the tanks, but um, we, I'll, we will walk there in a few minutes, and I'll show you we have also a what we call our oak room, where we have some large oak uprights and we have a lot of barrel storage there. If you're really good at wine tasting, can you taste the barrel? Is there, is, is the, the flavor given off, if that's the, the proper term, the essence of that barrel evident to the wine connoisseur? Yes, very much. Uh, our, um, we uh, have uh, probably three or four different uh, types of French barrels uh, by types of this type of wood and the area it would come from in France. The oaks are different and they give a different flavor or seasoning to the wine. So uh, we will be tasting some, Dennis, uh, in, uh, shortly and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. You know, the other thing here in Napa that's interesting is obviously there is so much secondary industry involved in driving up here. I saw little companies that make wooden crates and little companies that make the corks for it. I mean, those all have to come from somewhere, but it really is a a major industry here. It's a very major. uh, We call them our cottage industries that support what what we're doing. We need these materials. We have uh, some very large and uh, fine label uh, printers 
and um, oh, and there are some gorgeous, labels. gorgeous labels. Very. Well, I mean, that's an art. We could do a whole show on labels if it were television. In fact, I'm happy you mentioned that because I'm going to show you. Uh, they're not even printed yet, but we do have some uh, samples. We're changing our whole labels on our bottles. Nice. We're going to have a whole different label now. I don't want to call it a high-tech, but I think it's a very lovely label. And uh, I think this is very important now for the, um, for the industry. If people want to uh, join the harvest or come at a time during harvest, which is also a very uh, beautiful time for the weather here, it's uh, usually a little cooler. Uh, the, the hot summer days are, are um, cooling down a little bit. It starts somewhere around September 1st. Sometimes it could be by mid-August. They start picking um, the uh, Chardonnays and the wines that they make the champagnes with first, because they, they pick them at a lower sugar. Well, for example, some friends and I are coming up here, I think, the 6th of September. So that wouldn't be a bad, it may be a little bit early, but there will be things going on by there then. There will be things going on in September. Uh, certainly for the Chardon uh, for the uh, champagne. Now, how late in the uh, into the fall will the harvest continue? Usually, uh, it ends pretty much by the end of October. Okay. Uh, it could, uh, depending on the weather, uh, it could. I've seen it uh, into uh, almost into Thanksgiving. And then all during the winter, the fermentation takes place. Then. Well, the fermentation would start immediately as soon as you crush the grapes. Okay. Starting in, uh, well, hours after you get them, you will um, uh, start fermentation usually. Uh, or it could be a day later if you want to get a little skin contact before you uh, the fermentation starts, before you add the yeast. Because uh, most of us in the wine business add the yeast. Uh, we don't uh, ferment on um, its natural yeast or field yeast. Basically that does what? Simply speed things up and, and make it a more complete process? No, I think it's a, more of a safety process. Almost all of your field yeast is good, but once in a while you'll get a wild yeast that'll make a bad fermentation. Ah. And when you're fermenting uh, large quantities and the value of it, uh, most of us can't take chances losing a tank of wine. Yes. Well, now, one of these tanks will end up being how many bottles? Well, we have, a, as you can see here, if you see these signs, we have many sizes of tanks here. Yeah, I just, as I look up now, I understand they're not all the same. No. So, uh, this is going to be a hard uh, thing to tell you. Charlie, what about this tank over here that uh, seems to have frost on the outside? Is it refrigerated? Is that... Are you creating that, or is what's happening inside yeah. doing that? That is no. Uh, what's happening there is uh, this tank here. We are uh, cold-stable, cold-stabling white wine, taking the tartrates out. Naturally. Oh, I see. And, and you have a, a thermostat, a probe in there to That's check the correct. temperature. And this is done all automatic. And it's at 40 degrees now, about. Not quite freezing, but... Yeah. Uh, now this tank also, we also press and uh, white wines and we use it, we call it a mute. 
And what we do with that is on some of our white wine, we add a touch of residual grape sugar, which is grape juice. We're not allowed by law to add any sugar to wines in, in California. So the only way we could do, if you want a, a, a late harvest wine or a wine that is not 100% bone dry, we can add back some fresh grape juice that still has the sugar in it. Also, we could uh, ferment the wine, like if you want a wine to have its own uh, natural sugar left, we will ferment the wine down to as low as we want to where, do you, where we want our residual sugar. Let's say we want it at 1%. At about 1%, we chill the tank right away. And that puts the yeast to sleep. And then we filter out the yeast, put the wine back in to a sterile tank that has no yeast, and then we keep it chilled day and night until the time we want to bottle it. And then we sterile bottle it. And that holds its own residual sugar that the grape had, unfermented sugar. I didn't realize until, until I was here at harvest time that actually it is the sugar content at the time of harvest, uh, for one thing, that the, the grape growers are paid on, if I'm not mistaken, that, that, that measuring that sugar content is very important. That, that's very right, because uh, that gives us where uh, the sugar level where we want uh, the wine to be uh, at start of fermentation and where we get the most flavors and tastes and also the alcohol level which is very important um, so that's why it is important to uh, bring in the grapes at a certain what we call a certain uh, sugar level master winemaker charlie abella who ate, breathed, and slept grapes most of his life. Back with more from Charlie after this. Welcome back. We're in Napa Valley, California wine country, and our guide to the Rutherford and Stag's Leap Vintners it was a guy named Charlie Abella. Charlie's long gone, but there's still a wine named for him in Napa, and he still has quite a reputation and left a wonderful legacy. He continued his tour with me through the winery. Well, I was thinking of taking you now. You're seeing the tanks. You're seeing more barrels now in our aisleways. And I'm going to take you to our barrel room now right. and to our wood room, our oak room. Charlie, as we walk along, let me ask you a question. I know you have a lot of people come through here. Uh, I'm always fascinated when I go to any kind of production facility at the kinds of questions young kids ask. When, when, they, when, they're, when the light bulb first comes on on top of their head and they first realize how all this works, what kind of comments and questions do you get from kids here? Well, they must just be really fascinated, for one thing, with all these big tanks. Right. Uh... I can't come up with something that's funny or anything. Uh, they can come up with anything uh, when it comes to that. You've been asked some pretty crazy questions. Uh, like, you know, where do these barrels come from? How are they made? 
uh, and uh, how do you get uh, the wine out of those tanks or in the tanks? Uh, many questions of that type. And um, oh, this is interesting. Some of these metal ones say, I won't say this out loud too loudly. Property of the Coca-Cola Company. <laughs> right. Well, I guess a barrel is a barrel. Uh, those are stainless steel uh, uh, containers, uh, and they're uh, they're drums. They're called when they're stainless steel. They're called stainless steel drums. And they date from 19th. They're older than I am. Right. And we bought these surplus that were on the market. Many many wineries have them. Uh, they sold them very reasonable. They're the strongest uh, stainless steel drum that we've ever seen. Ah. Well, if they lasted that long and they're still going strong. And uh, we use them as breakdown vessels. Uh, we have to keep all our barrels, all our tanks, totally full with no airspace on top. And uh, so we never have the proper size tank for the amount of wine we have. So then we put it in the biggest tank we can. Then we'll break it down into a smaller tank, down to a barrel or a drum down to a five-gallon demijohn and all the way down maybe even to a gallon and a fifth. Well, you know, it all starts in the vineyards. We uh, pay close attention. That's one of my jobs here also. One of my uh, duties is to work with the grape growers. So um, we do have a committee, which is myself, uh, and um, we have a, a, our winemaker also. Uh, he gets involved, the assistant winemaker gets involved, and we work in the vineyards. We go out and inspect the grapes ourselves before we give the okay to harvest them. We also monitor the growing season also before. And uh, then when the grapes come in, we have already known what the sugars are, as the, the grape owner, the owner of the vineyard, he takes sugar readings, and we do also. So when they come in, uh, we know the condition of them by looking at them. And then, uh, then we ferment, and we know pretty much what we're going to get. If we're working with a new vineyard, we usually buy a smaller amount, so we don't buy a lot of those grapes, to get a history on the vineyard and what kind of wine it can produce. Because uh, many times, you can have some wonderful numbers on the grapes, the proper acid before you, uh, and the pH of the grape. All the numbers look good. Uh, the grape itself looks good, nice and clean, but you'll end up not having the flavors you want. And uh, so the numbers aren't the only things you must, uh, the taste all is very, very important. I guess you could almost put too much concentration on the uh, the analytical aspects of it, forgetting the fact that people buy wine for the pleasure of it. That is correct. And what it, what the final, the, the proof in the pudding is, how does the wine taste? That's, that's the main thing. Charlie, we've got a little bit of time remaining. I, you mentioned the, the bottling area where a lot of the noise is coming from. Uh, if you could, as we walk through here, describe to us what's happening. All right, uh, what's happening, we're in the bottle area now, you can hear the noise level here increasing. We bring in our uh, bottles already cased. They're already in a box. So what we're doing here, they're coming in right there on that pallet. Uh -huh. And you see this person here, he takes the box, 
the box is only sealed on the bottom, the tops are open. He opens the flaps, tips it over, and he dumps them on this collection table here. And they're they're standing upright because they've, as you say, they've opened the bottom. Well, they right there they go. He missed that one. <laughs> yeah, that one a few fell over, but uh, he won't do that very often. Very little of that happens. It's uh, runs very smooth, and then they are conveyed to that big round drum there, that stainless steel drum. Uh huh. That is a bottle sparger, and what it's doing, it blows air into the bottle upside. It's rotating the bottle. 360 degrees okay and then one of the segments is blowing air into it blowing any possibility of a dust that might be in there or something okay so if and anything's accidentally gotten into the bottle that that right knocks it out of there correct and then as it rotates more it's sparging the air out of it with nitrogen so the bottles are full of nitrogen then they're moving along a little further, and that is our filler. Goes into a clean room, we call it. All the air is filtered in the clean room, and we keep it closed. And that's a white wine going in. Ah, uh, today this is correct, right. And we can look through the uh, door here. Oh boy, we may have to yell in here, Charlie. <laughs> because these are what you're hearing here. We got vacuum running in here, filling the bottle. There's a vacuum filler, by the way. Then it goes immediately to the corker to be corked. Oh, and it smells wonderful. Yes, it is. It's, it's great. And uh, we do about this uh, filler and corker, we do about 90 to 95 bottles a minute. This runs at which gives us about 3,000 cases in a seven-hour day. And as you say, everything in here is immaculately clean. It has to be. Yeah, this is a clean room. Once the uh, bottle is corked, it comes out of the room here on the other side. I was going to say, I think we can stop yelling now. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we're out of that. So they've been Okay, here they come. They've been corked already See, and sealed. Coming out on the other side, and they are corked and sealed. And now we have a, a person here who is visually inspecting the bottles. They're inspecting for low fills or high fills or the position of the cork, that the cork is at the proper level uh -huh. uh, for anything that might be in there, a, a chip off of a cork, a chip. You know, automation equipment is absolutely fascinating to see how much of precision goes into this yet nobody touches it yes correct and the other machine over there that will put uh, the uh, ceiling uh, putting the capsules on shrink it shrinking them uh -huh. or homogenizing them if they're a tin capsule and uh, then they leave that machine and they're going over there to that uh, machine that says Mustang on it, and that is our labeler. And that'll label the, uh, the bottles. Then if we walk around here, I'll show you where they leave there. Oh, this is neat. Boy, it just runs like clockwork. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> we uh, have a nice uh, winery here, a nice design, and very efficient.
my goodness, there they come. They've been put in the, uh, everything's finished. They've been put there, and then the machine closes the flaps. Right. And then by the time they get down here, okay, now they're making kind of a right-hand turn up a conveyor. Mm-hmm. Coming to where they're stacking them, but in the meantime, before that, they're going through these uh, inkjet coaters here. And that puts, that puts the barcode on the box. Well, some some that, type of coating. It puts the uh, time of day that they were bottled, the day they were bottled. So if you have a problem with the batch, you can go back, check the records, and know when it happened, what exactly. kind of... What stage of production? What stage of production? Four, calls them four different times a day. First two hours in the morning, the second two hours in the morning, afternoon, and late afternoon. Now what also is coding the, what the product is now. Now what kind of distribution do you have? Uh, nationwide, do you have uh, export on any of this? Yeah, we do. Uh, we uh, are in almost every state in the Union, including Alaska, we're in Hawaii, uh, and in... Uh, are there any kind of uh, federal complications for shipping? Uh, because it is an alcoholic product, do you have to deal with each state individually? Is it, is it a difficult thing to get that kind of distribution? Uh, no, it's not difficult if you have a good product. And, uh, but it does take a lot of... It, it is very costly to the wineries to do all this compliance for each state. Almost every state is different. And uh, you have to ship uh, only to distributors. In California, we could ship to a retailer if we want to, but not out of state. Every state is regulated differently. And we have to uh, make monthly reports for every state. So we have one person and part of another person. That's all they do, just compliance work. But of course, it has to be worth it. He wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. Well, it's all added into the cost of uh, doing business. Well, Charlie, it's all a science, and I, uh, I want to thank you for giving us a, a peek behind the scenes. Thank you very much, Dennis. And uh, it was a pleasure to have you here with us today. Master winemaker Charlie Abella. Back in a moment with more on our regular Monday visit. Welcome back. We're going to close out this week by doing something that, well, I had never done before, and you might not have done either, and that is open up a brand-new hotel from scratch. I talked to Laura Mellican at what at that time was the brand-new Marriott Hotel in suburban Dallas, and she said bringing a name-brand hotel online quickly was not an easy task. They want everything done in a timely manner. They want it. They want to come in quickly. They want to leave quickly. They don't want to be held up. Um, but, it, you know, they want to be able to socialize if they are new in the area. They want a lot of information about the best places to go. They want all the technical things, um, computer data ports, um, in the room, the hookups, the 
two phone lines, the voicemail, the access to the business center, uh, that they can do themselves any time of the day, no matter what their hours are. They also, like you said, want the health club so that they can work out any time. They keep crazy hours a lot of times. Something else that I have been seeing in my travels, and that is, I'm not going to use the word happy hour here because people are trying to get away from that, mm-hmm. that over unmoderated mm-hmm. kind of thing, mm-hmm. but you have a, a friendly time where, and you're not the only hotel that does this, but you have uh, soft drinks, other drinks, hors d'oeuvres, light supper, but yet I've talked to a few people here who obviously are using this as a kind of temporary residence while they're right. working here. There's a wonderful kind of camaraderie, I mm-hmm. sense, and it's almost as if everybody's come down for supper. Yeah, yeah, it, well it is, it is, and a lot of these people are like family because they're here so much. It's I'm with them as much as I am with my family. <laughs> so so, you know, it's great to have a, a nice rapport with these people that are here a lot, and, and it's nice to be able to provide something and give them an opportunity to meet other people and meet the staff so that, you know, when you know who you're dealing with, you, you do try to go the extra mile. Not that we don't do that for every guest, but when you're on a first-name basis and you know them personally, you know, it, it, you do want to take really good care of them. Well, you're in a neat a location here. You're within 10 minutes of the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, which is now the busiest airport, or mm-hmm. now and then it sets that record. But you're also across the street from Six Flags and six blocks from the ballpark at Arlington. This is going to be a busy summer, your first one. It's almost going to be baptism by fire for you. Well, I came from the full-service Marriott, and we housed all the baseball teams, and we had 300 in a day, 300 out a day, and... The, the convention center was right next door. So I think this is going to be a little bit easier than that. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. it uh, most of the hotels in the area do have full occupancy during uh, our peak season when Six Flags, Hurricane Harbor, and the ballpark is open. What is there about Bill Marriott that makes him so neat? I interviewed him on the first uh, long-form program I did this year. Uh, it was by satellite. He was in Washington, D.C. I was in Los Angeles. But he just, I hope what you see is what you get, because he just seemed as if he's out there meeting the employees, mm-hmm. much the way I remember Colonel Sanders and, mm-hmm. and many of those people whose names are on the establishment. Well, I have, I have not met him personally. I haven't had that pleasure or honor, but um, I know that they really encourage empowerment in their employees. Um, letting the the employee go the extra mile and do whatever it takes to please the guest and that's something that I think is very important in the hotel industry if you want people to keep coming back it's very important let's talk about some concerns people have this facility here at Wingate is following the pattern of many where just as in the older hotels, you have to go in a front door. Mm-hmm. It isn't like the motels where every room has an exit. This really talks to a lot of people's concerns for security. Well, that's another thing that caters to the business traveler. Uh, people that carry the laptop computers or a lot of cash or uh, carry a lot of jewelry. Uh, we have the individual safes in the rooms, which is a nice thing, and I would recommend anybody use the safe. So many people have access to your room no matter where you go. Uh, we have the whole hotel is completely monitored, sound and video, 
24 hours a day and is recorded, which is also a good safety factor, um, uh, aside from the security guards that, that uh, do patrol the area. Uh, but we have cameras at the end of each hall. We have cameras in every area of the hotel and monitors so that we can watch what's going on all the time. Not to put words in your mouth, but when people call either an individual hotel or the 800 number, I have been told by several reservations people that often they don't ask enough questions. They're for some reason timid to ask about pets and kids and location and how close the nearest church or synagogue is, that kind of thing. All of that is available in computer. Right, it, it is, and, and we have, uh, we have uh, books back here of any question or potential question a guest might ask, a list of the churches, the different denominations, the different restaurants in the area, uh, the clubs, you know, we, we have access to all that information, and if, you know, we're happy to offer it. The spring travel season is not that far away in, in much of the U.S. What advice would you give to a person planning a vacation who maybe hasn't been on vacation for a while as far as the fact that the types of choices you have now in motel and hotel lodging mm -hmm. is so different than it used to be? Definitely it is. Um, the hotels are there to do whatever it is you ask for. We, we try to provide uh, great service and pretty much whatever it is we can do to meet the traveler's needs we're happy to do um, like I said whether it's restaurant referrals or information on theme park hours or prices we have all that information does your organization work pretty closely with travel agents are they still a pretty good source for booking this type of thing sure I would say that's probably about half of our our business so far it's, it's hard to judge because we've only been open three weeks now but um, so far about half of our calls have been from travel agents the other half has been simply word of mouth we haven't done much mass advertising yet however you'll start seeing it in the airport terminals I think we've done some advertising in uh, uh, Newsweek and uh, Wall Street Journal and, and this particular hotel is trying to cater more to the businessman it's funny how so often when we stay in a motel, a hotel, we forget how much work went into putting that there. The employees, getting them together, training them, make sure they know what they're doing and make sure that they represent the ownership to the public and give them something good for their money. What a fun, fun show this has been, and I hope you've enjoyed going along with us this time around. And that's it for this week. Don't forget, I've got an easy email address, kind of silly, but you'll remember it. Bingo, B-I-N-G-O, at earthlink.net. Dennis Daly, join me next week right here.